Hello and welcome to Bread and Thread, a podcast about food and domestic history. I'm Liz. And I'm Hazel. We are two friends who studied archaeology together and love history. And today we have an important extra person. Yes, we have um, Max from Tasting History on YouTube. Hello. Thanks for having me. Hello. Hello, hello. Uh, thanks. Thanks for uh, agreeing to be on our like tiny podcast with your of course. very cool internet self. Um. <laughs> <laughs> of course. It's food history and culinary history. I, you, you can't keep me away. So I'm, I'm here if I'm asked. <laughs> um, awesome. I am super excited about um, the topic today as well, because it's something I know nothing about. And um, yeah. it sounds like a, a, a cornucopia of delights. But first, we, all, we always start by talking about what we've been making and baking this week. Ah. Maybe our guest should go first. Well, I have been making, um, I've been making <laughs> something called Farts of Portingal. Probably uh, one of the one of the worst names for a dish, but um, I'll be doing an episode on it. And they're uh, little meatballs from the time of Shakespeare. So just with a terrible name. That sounds much more delicious than the name <laughs> would suggest. The name would suggest, indeed, indeed. <laughs> cool. Um, Liz? I got a hold of some wool from Berry Market. Um, awesome. Which is a rainbow variegated yarn that's twisted around a black one. Ooh. So I'm currently making a jumper that looks like a roller disco. Is <laughs> the only way I can describe this yarn. <laughs> Does that mean one will be able to roller skate on you? One could try. <laughs> That sounds fantastic. Um, did I talk about the nettles last time? I don't... I think you might have done when we did the trifle one. Okay. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I can nettle progress update. So I, I have been... Um, well, the attempt is to make fabric out of nettles um because that's a historically was a source of cheap fabric um so there are currently several bundles of nettles in my back garden sort of retting down <laughs> so that the um the fibers separate and then i can try and spin them um which is what normal people do with their weekends right i'm, I'm very excited about this so you're using your drop spindle uh, probably, I'll probably try some on the wheel as well, see what the difference is. I've heard that it helps if you wet spin them. So if you dip your fingers in water uh, and then spin, it makes it easier. But um, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> it's uh, definitely an experimental process. But there are, um, there are certainly a lot of parts of the world in which people still do use nettles for clothing. So um, yeah, I'll have to do a little bit of research on that and um, see what I'm doing wrong or right. We are going to have to do an episode on nettles because like, they can be clothes, they can be food. I mean, 
I basically self-medicate with nettle tea because it's an anti-inflammatory. Nettles are like a wonderful plant. I, I have a friend who has a book called 101 Uses for Nettles, which is the best thing I've ever heard. That is very on brand. <laughs> it is very on brand, um, especially for like people that I know. <laughs> We're, we're not talking about nettles today. Max, what are we talking about? We are talking about Fanny Farmer and her Boston Cooking School cookbook from 1896. Uh, she was a... <clears throat> so, um, Ms. Farmer was born in 1857 uh, outside of Boston, and she got polio uh, when she was young, and at 16 she had a stroke which left her paralyzed, oh waist goodness. down, wow. and it took quite a number of years for her to be able to uh, walk again, but when she finally did, and she always had a limp, but when she finally did, she decided that she was going to um, take up cooking. She had been kind of cooking at her parents' house, which was part boarding house for a while and people seem to like her food. Uh, so she thought, she thought, you know, I'm going to, to do this for real. Uh, and so she went to the Boston cooking school and in 1889, she graduated and she was basically asked to become kind of the vice principal, if you will, uh, right after she graduated. And then in 1891, just a couple of years later, she took over the whole school uh, as, as the principal. So she obviously knew what she was doing. And she ended up writing a book that was for her students originally, um, but it was, it's the first cookbook to, to kind of use science, um, the cooking, the science of cooking and incorporate all of that um, she would talk about the molecular formula for glucose and lactose and, um, you know, what what cold water is, is 35 to 65 degrees Fahrenheit and versus tepid water versus warm. So very, very precise measurements. Um, she talked about the amount of food a person needs in a day, the uh, average ration, as she, she said, and it was four and a half ounces of protein, 18 ounces of starch, two ounces of fat, and five pints of water, a third of which is taken through food, the rest through a beverage. And while all of that may seem kind of kind of dull and um, not really something that people need to know, it's important because before, before Ms. Farmer wrote her cookbook, cookbooks were Sometimes they would give you amounts. Sometimes they would give you temperatures. Sometimes they wouldn't. Um, even if you just go back a few years, I, I, I listened to your podcast on on Alexander Dumas, and mm -hmm. you know that was only what twenty some odd years before this, and his recipes didn't give specific amounts. And when they did, they would often say, you know, a handful of this or a pinch of that and you know no specific temperatures or anything like that so what any farmer ended up becoming called the mother of level measurement because that's what she standardized not only did she say a cup of flour but she said 
you know, you, you fill the cup with flour and then you take a knife and you scrape off the top so it's a level measurement. And that was, that was pretty new. Uh, it wasn't, she didn't necessarily come up with it, but she standardized it and made the entire book follow this one, um, one style. And, and basically every cookbook since has in some way kind of followed that style. So very, very influential book on, on later cookbooks and on how we cook today. Yeah, that's a fantastic title as well. Um, yeah mother of level is, i mean it basically it tells what it is the boston cooking school cookbook. Yeah. um but yeah because um most sort of older than that recipes that i've read seem to assume that you kind of know what you're doing already and you right like you you know how much of whatever to put in and you just need some ideas or something um yeah, like but recipe that I is I think an early modern recipe for humble pie that I came across um from Castle Howard and it was like I'll put some cloves in it's like okay how clovey am I making this exactly like, there's a big difference between like a couple of cloves and like just chucking a handful into this pie I mean, yeah, that's a problem if you're not habitually using cloves, which are quite expensive, and then you're you're finally coming up in the world, you know, and you've uh, you've got a few few cloves at Christmas time, and just how many cloves? Who knows? You end up with like clove central in your um, Christmas pudding or whatever. There must have been some absolutely right. foul food on the table. <laughs> <The> nouveau riche. <laughs> Um, yeah, a lot of so, those cookbooks, like you said, assume that they're that you know what you're doing already, and so they were kind of written for people who were already professional cooks. Whereas since mm -hmm. she was working at the the cooking school, she was she had students in mind who weren't already professionals. So where most most cookbooks assumed you knew what you were doing, she assumed you did not know what you were doing. <laughs> you know, she she has uh, a great a great line in the introduction of the book that says, good measurement with experience has taught some to measure by sight, but the majority need definite guides. And that's so true. I mean, I know that I need a definite guide. Um, you know, you can you can play with things, of course, in the kitchen, especially if you're not baking. Baking really needs kind of specifics, but but without some some idea of what and how much to put in, you can you can come up with vastly different dishes than than someone else. That said, even with a recipe, and and while she gets a lot of credit, she also has her detractors, especially in recent years. Um, who kind of say that she she gave people a false sense of of perfection. You know, if I follow this recipe exactly as Fanny Farmer says, then I'm going to come out with exactly what what I'm supposed to. But that's just not the case because there are things that in cooking, especially in baking, that influence what you're doing that that can't really be written down. You know, the whether it's the ambient temperature of the room or the humidity or what type of flour you're using or how old it is or how compact it is, um, the temperature of your water, the 
different ovens, just all sorts of things can can go into it. So she she gave very precise measurements, but that that also gave people a false sense that they couldn't go wrong. And um, I was was listening to someone the other day, kind of talking about how you know cake has been in the oven for forty five minutes. I'm taking it out because the, the recipe says to take it out after 45 minutes. It's clearly still raw, but I'm taking it out anyway. You know, you kind of, with, with the precise measurements, you also lose a bit of that just kind of knowledge of, of what you're doing uh, based on your own savvy and, and being able to see what you're doing in front of you. So yeah. it goes both ways, I suppose. Uh -huh. I, I guess sorry about this. Um, oh. I was teaching a friend to cook. He had never cooked anything before in his life. So I was like, oh, you know, we'll start simple. We'll just make like a Victoria sponge. It's sort of, you put in the set amounts, you bake it, it's a cake. Um, something went wrong with the oven. So we ended up with a burnt shell of cake. It was entirely raw in the middle. Oh. We kind of salvaged and ended up like dunking chocolate into it, like some sort of weird cake fondue. <laughs> but we, <laughs> that followed, good, we followed the way that I always make a Victoria sponge and it turned into cake fondue. <laughs> there are yeah, so many things that can go wrong. Would you think that would be a badly regulated oven temperature? Yeah, I think the problem was, it was I mean, it wasn't a great oven. We already knew that. We just didn't think it was going to be that bad. It was like, you know when you're barbecuing something and it's like charcoal on the outside, but you cut into it and it's still pink? Mm hmm It was that, but cake. It was barbecue cake. It was barbecue okay. cake. Oh, no. <laughs> Love it. <clears throat> um, I don't think I've got anything that spectacularly wrong um I, you've just reminded me of the time that rose and i made a cake and we put like six packets of tutti frutti's in the middle because we thought that was a good idea uh, apparently the ants also thought that was a good idea um don't do that <laughs> sorry i once made a uh, a wonderful blueberry pie and um but the top you know i had done i had done this really intricate um kind of design on the top of the pie with with the with the dough to make blueberry vines and leaves and all little blueberries it was gorgeous and wow put the pie and the pie was done but um but the top was was just too light and i needed to darken it up just a little bit and uh i kind of looked online and and some people said just turn on the um turn on the broiler but it said just for a bit. I, said, I can okay, see what's I'll coming. Turn on the boiler. <laughs> How long is a bit? Well, for me, a bit is like I don't know, two minutes. <laughs> a minute into the broiler being on, apartment is filled with smoke. the The pie is destroyed. <laughs> I think a bit in this case probably meant. 10 seconds <laughs> but but if you're not specific you can come up with something very very different and uh, i was i was so sad i still lament that pie because it took hours to work on i am in mourning for this pie that never was 
Yeah, he's no. my favorite as well. <laughs> it was uh, it was horrible. Well, the nice thing was the inside was still fine because the only part that had burned was the top. So we ended up making kind of just a, a cobbler out of it. We took off the burnt top and then and then ate the rest with cream. So it was still delicious, but but it wasn't beautiful. It was not beautiful. You always meant to make a tart, and no one can prove otherwise. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Uh, yes. I guess you could say that's a, a bittersweet ending. Um, Indeed. Um, another interesting thing about uh, this this cookbook that she made was because really one of the impressive things about it is not just the actual cookbook, which which ended up becoming, you know, I mean, it's still in print over 120 years later, it's still in print. Um, but the impressive thing was was her. She, so she had, had cobbled together this, this cookbook from, some were her recipes, some were recipes that her predecessor, Mrs. Lincoln, who owned the school had given her and ended up putting together nearly 3000 recipes for this book. Oh, sorry, not 3000, um, 1850 recipes for this book and um and nobody would publish it because nobody thought that it was going to to go well so finally when she did find a publisher little brown and company they they only said that they were going to do 3000 copies and she had to pay for it so essentially it's it's a self published book <laughs> i don't really know what they they didn't have any skin in the game at all so so she paid for it and self published it but it was it was a good move because she ended up retaining the copyright, and it went on to sell hundreds of thousands of copies uh, in the first few years. And now I believe it's at I, I've read seven million copies. So it made her a very wealthy woman, uh, wealthy enough that a few years later, in 1902, uh, she opened her own. Fanny Farmer, uh, Miss Farmer's School of Cookery. And that was unique because it was geared not toward people who were becoming professional cooks or servants, because servants were starting to starting to disappear from, from uh, middle-class households at the time. And so it was geared toward housewives. This, you know, it, she was teaching people who knew absolutely nothing about cooking because their mother had had cook in the house so she didn't she couldn't teach them uh so she was teaching housewives from the ground up and so for forty dollars uh you got two months uh, you got a month of classes two classes each day for six days a week and at the end you were supposed to be able to cook pretty much anything so it was it was <clears throat> like cooking boot camp yeah that's pretty decent yeah like all yeah. you can think of right she, now she, is the show Worst Cooks in America. I'm just imagining that, <laughs> but all in like yes. Victorian outfits. Oh, I want that. Yes, absolutely. I really want to see that. Absolutely. Yeah, she was. Um, she was really a remarkable woman, especially because, like I said, she, you know, she had, she had a limp. She was a woman in the turn of the century, uh, Boston, which is a, an automatic strike against you. Uh, she was. She, she continued to um, have health issues as she went along. She ended up having another stroke uh, fairly soon before she died, but she was still lecturing. Um, she lectured at Harvard. She was, the, I believe, the first woman to lecture at Harvard Medical School, which was, wow. which was rather impressive because she focused a lot on 
as medicine um, because she had been, you know, they use the term an invalid uh, for for so long growing up. She really she knew what what foods helped her at the time and what didn't, what was easy to digest and whatnot. So in all of her books, there was always a section on food for for being sick. And she actually she ended up doing an entire book called Food and Cookery for the Sick and Convalescent, which was just food for um, an entire kind of diet nutrition program for for the ill, which was was pretty pretty new. It had, there had been, it's, it wasn't a new concept, but, but for an entire book to be on that uh, subject was, was fairly, fairly inventive. So she was like an early nutritionist, basically. Absolutely. She was so all about the science behind food and, and its effect on the body. You know, it wasn't just this needs to taste good. It, it was and this needs to do good as well. She was, it, it's interesting. She's she's kind of like, I don't know if you, you know Alton Brown, one of my favorites, but he used to have a show all about the science of food. And when you read her books, it's it's kind of like she was the, the late 19th century version of Alton Brown. She was so obsessed with the science of books or, or of food. Granted, science was, you know, still, and it still is, but especially when it comes to nutrition, there are a lot of things that she touts as scientific that you would definitely need to put quotes around because they're they're complete bunk. But she was trying, and and that was a big step in the right direction. <laughs> well, there's still a lot of misleading science around food, right? Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, every time. There's a study that seems to confirm, like I don't like um, fatty foods are bad for you or something, and then suddenly all the papers are like, "Don't eat this," and then the next right. time um, there's like a slight thing that comes out, they're like, "Do eat this," and uh, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a fat person with digestion issues, it's a minefield. <laughs> Um, I mean, yeah, at some point you kind of think like, well, what's actually the truth here? Um, right. That's so true. Yeah. Um, so did her work, um, get, her work in terms of um, like nutrition and health get um, adopted in, in medical circles or... Yeah, did she have any effect on the the medical community or hospitals in the area with her um, with her ideas? I think I think so. Um, you know, I, it's hard to kind of tell exactly what effect she had, but her her like I said, she lectured at Harvard Medical School, so clearly she was seen as an expert in the subject. Um, and mm -hmm. you know, I. Like I said, her her book was definitely meant more for for the at home. So the recipes were more used for uh, convalescing at home. I don't know how hospitals necessarily uh, introduced her work or or if they did, but I mean the the ideas behind her behind her convalescent foods were were really you know no heavy meats lighter things, no heavy cream. It was more of a, 
uh, light broths and stuff like that. It was more of just, can you digest this? Is this easily digestible? Because you're not getting any exercise. You're just kind of laying in bed all day. Um, so that was really the idea behind most of it. Um, and I feel like hospitals still do that. <laughs> still do that. You know, you get ice chips or whatever. <laughs> yeah, probably. I, I mean, um, I, I remember is um, I, I had a short stay in hospital when I was about 10. And all I remember is um, some very bland sponge cake in a perfect square. Um, <laughs> yeah, I had, I had um, well, what was supposed to be outpatient surgery, but I ended up staying overnight last year. I had a very nice fish pie, but it was definitely under-seasoned. But I don't know if that's just because I'm used to putting a lot of seasonings in my food. I feel like hospital food has always gotten kind of a bad rap, and <clears throat> rightly so in most cases. So, you know. But then, so, I mean, maybe better. that's maybe that's designed to, you know, not give you the collie wobbles. Maybe it's not a bad thing. Yeah, yeah. Or just that you don't want to stay there any longer than you have to. <laughs> True. Oh, this is too nice. I think I'll stay. Get out of here and get some some real food. Just yeah. Well, I'm, I'm not better, but the food here is great. <laughs> I guess when when you're sort of at home sick with like the flu or something like that, you do tend to gravitate towards like chicken soup or just like constant cups of tea rather than anything yeah. more substantial yeah a double cheeseburger doesn't usually go down too well if you're if you're not well um makes sense. doesn't stay down <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is delicious and it'll be delicious in a moment when it comes back <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean yeah either that or it goes down too well and keeps going <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, indeed. Oh um, boy! Yeah. One more thing cool. about the book that one more thing about the book that I find so interesting is in the back she has menus, <clears throat> and they are you know menus of the time period for for kind of upper middle class households, and they're like twelve courses, forty dishes, thirty or forty dishes. Um, you know, and it's just, if you've ever seen a late Victorian kitchen, just, I can't, I can't even compute how you would put all of that together in a timely manner. I, I have to imagine that so much of the food was being served at room temperature because after you cook it, it's like, okay, this is ready. All right. But that's course seven and we're on course three. So it's going to sit there for 40 minutes. Um, and, and this is aimed at people without cooks. Right. Though I, I feel like with those giant menus, you'd have to hire some help. There's absolutely no way <laughs> yeah. that you could. You'd have to have like 10 arms. I wonder, though, how much time would have been between the courses? Because there's the story about Queen Victoria. So sort of slightly earlier than than this slash overlapping. Um, mm -hmm. where supposedly she'd have these big multi-course banquets. But as soon as she was finished with a dish, it was all cleared away and it was time for the next one. And she ate rather quickly. 
yeah, I've heard about that. And then as soon as she would finish eating and put her knife and fork down, the plates of everyone would suddenly be whisked away. Yeah. 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 So, so I do wonder if it was more of a sort of more conspicuous consumption than accidental. I think so. More conspicuous consumption than actual consumption. Right. I, I think that that's possible. And they were, you know, you're not eating, especially in America, you're not eating American-sized portions. You know, they, these were, you would have a few bites of everything. And, and it was just kind of like going to a buffet, I suppose. Um, well, there are a, a lot of, uh, there are a lot of Victorian era recipes for using up stale things or making things into other things like uh, mm -hmm. leftovers. Um, so maybe that was just normal that you would have a lot of leftovers and then you just use them in something else. Yeah. Or giving like to making, the making like turkey curry at Christmas. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, my, my father always makes, we call it Thanksgiving pie, the day after Thanksgiving, you know, because it's a huge food holiday over here. And so we make, mm. make this pie with the leftover mashed potatoes, stuffing, sweet potatoes, cranberries, gravy, turkey, just everything kind of mashed together. It's absolutely wonderful. It's I actually prefer it to the full meal the day before. <laughs> So happy to so hear like, that someone else does this. A roast in a pie. From a Sunday roast, my mum would always make a leftover pie. What? Yes. I'm doing so happy it? that this isn't just a my family thing. Yeah. That, no, I think that doesn't surprise me because you are from Lancashire and that is the county of pie. Yeah, pie is, is our national dish up here. I mean, I, oh, I used to go out with a guy who would get a pie and then put it in a bread roll and eat it. Yes, a pie butty. Northerners. Is this, the, is this your ex from Wigan by any chance? Yes. Yeah, that's a Wigan delicacy. <laughs> I love that. You have a pie wrapped in pastry and you're like, what does this need? It needs more carbs. <laughs> it needs more flour-based food. It's working class like, fuel. Uh, I mean, where I'm we from, we don't chip even... Butties. We have chip butties, yeah. But where I'm from, we don't even put gravy on our chips. So, you know. Illegal. <laughs> Actually illegal. <laughs> there, is, there is a very hotly contested debate over what you should put on your chips in the UK. It's, it's very much it's... a north-south divide. Although I did convince someone from Gibraltar to try chips and gravy. And that's like the most southern you can be from while still being from a British territory. And she liked it. I think I, I have to go with just plain ketchup. I just love ketchup. I'm so boring, but I no, that's, that's I nothing wrong with that. I do get putting um, in whenever I'm in England, people are always dipping it in uh, in vinegar and or oh. Yes. Liam Perrins. And I'm like, what, what are you doing? No. <laughs> so, I don't know. I have my favorite, salt and vinegar. Yeah, that's what yeah. Nick goes with. Nick yeah. being from yeah. uh, Bristol. Nick Taste goes with lots of vinegar, lots of salt, and then ketchup. I am partial to a mushy pea as well. Oh, I love a mushy pea. Cravings <laughs> <laughs> now. A local chippy closed. 
Oh no! Or are you going to get your really want like chips and pie and gravy? Didn't you want to make your own chip slice? Well, yeah. It's not the same though. <laughs> it's not the same unless it's got tons of added. We don't. Chemicals. We don't really have chip spice in Lancashire. You have to buy it online. Uh, <laughs> oh, Max, I should probably explain chip spice. Please do. It's like salt and paprika and tomato powder and onion powder and sometimes garlic powder all mixed together into this just red concoction that you put on your chips and it's the best thing. I think I've heard that. But you only that. really I get it in, in sort of the northeast. You, you probably have had it. Like it's it's kind of a roulette depending because I've had it in a couple of places down here, but like it's okay. in the northeast. I think I had that when I was in I was in the Lake District and um and I think the, the I was at a bed and breakfast there uh in, in Keswick and somebody served served me that and I was actually really upset because I don't like paprika all that much. Oh no. Just give me plain 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 fries with ketchup, please. <laughs> oh, I imagine like that I mean that is quite unusual though. Like I can imagine you just going into a chip shop and just being them being like, What do you want in the chips? Um and you're just like, No. Like just nothing to eat. Like, no, no, what do you want on your chip? Without asking. <laughs> Love it. <clears throat> so after the uh the long chip-based interlude. <laughs> um, so did she? Did she remain successful? She did. She remained very successful um, until she was actually. She gave a lecture just a few days before she died. In and she had to do it from a wheelchair because she had just had another stroke, so she was uh, paralyzed again. But in her wheelchair, she gave a lecture just a few days before she died at 57 in 1915. So she didn't live a terribly long life, though I guess, you know, 57 is not bad, but um, especially when you're ill all your life. But uh, yeah, no, she, she stayed very successful. And she the school that she founded stayed open until after World War II. So. Oh, wow. Yeah well known in America now or is she one of these people that just sort of fades I think she's one of those people who fades you know she was she was kind of a celebrity chef chef in her day if if you can use that term back then but but she she has faded her legacy definitely lives on you know what what she did for for recipes, whether you agree with with her or not, that is when you look at her recipes in her book, they are formatted the same way that you're going to see recipes formatted today, the world over. Where there's a list, a bullet point list of ingredients, and then a paragraph description of what you do with those ingredients. And that was that was fairly new. And um, so she is. Her work is famous, even if her name is not. Her unfortunate name. <laughs> 
I do have one more question for you, I'm afraid. Courtesy mm -hmm. of Nick, I take no credit for this question. <laughs> what does history taste like? <laughs> An old book. You know, that wonderful, dusty smell that you get in old bookshops? That's what history tastes like to me. That's a good smell. I have a soap that smells like that. Oh, nice. Oh, I love it. One of my favorite things to do is order an old book online and have it sent to me. And, and then I just like hold my nose up to it. And I'm like, oh, that wonderful smell of dust mites and old leather. It just makes me happy. Yeah. I thought you were about to say, and then I eat it. <laughs> <laughs> I would not blame you. I would blame me. <laughs> you might blame you afterwards, yeah. <laughs> this, this is well, definitely You are a trained archaeologist. You cannot, you cannot condone eating books. <laughs> <laughs> I can if it is for science. Yes, <laughs> it's like, well, you know when you lick a rock to determine, um, you know, whether it's a rock or a bone? Uh, you oh, know, it's, yeah. like, it's like that. Um, if it's a no, real no, no. historical it's book, to see how old it is. <laughs> never done that. Yeah, you can uh, yeah. you can date books by the taste of the pages. Lovely. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to thank you so much for being on on our little podcast. Thank you so much. It was it was a real pleasure. Uh, this was fantastic. I had literally never heard of this wonderful woman before. Um, and now I want to go and read her book. So, um, yes. yeah, thank you. You're most welcome. Um, so if you've enjoyed today's episode, um, feel free to email us at breadandthreadpodcast at gmail.com if you have a suggestion. Um, you can also or... find us at breadandthread on Twitter. Um, where there are some pictures of things we've been doing as well. We also have a Patreon, um, just Bread and Thread, if if you want to give us some monies. Uh, we've got Max, I believe videos. you also have a Patreon? I do. It's patreon.com slash tastinghistory. And you can, of course, go to youtube.com slash tastinghistory to see the show. Which you absolutely should, because it is a fantastic YouTube channel. Yeah, I've been to all of your videos now, and it's just inspired me. It's things that I want to make and I want to learn about, and I'm very excited. Yeah, it is, because you, you often get, um, you know, you watch documentaries or you read about um, food and history, but you don't see that many people actually making it, and certainly not in a way that you could maybe do. So it definitely is inspiring to see someone do that and then think, oh, I could try that myself. Even if it is really weird to see an American talking about Nuki Brown. <laughs> I, I love England so much that, um, it, but it is odd. I, on an episode, even though I wasn't doing an English dish, it was an American dish. I had a lot of English people be like, it's weird to hear you say in an American accent. <laughs> So thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.